I grew up a very nerdy, shy, introverted person, and I thought travel would make me interesting in a way that all the people I met in Thailand were, that I could come back and regale people with stories and make them laugh and be the center of attention. You know, it's sort of like the Dos Equis guy. I'd be the most interesting man in the world. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I talk with travel expert Matt Kepnes, whose blog Nomadic Matt is one of the most successful, if not the most successful, travel sites of the blogging era. Matt also runs TravelCon, an annual convention meant to help people succeed in the travel industry. I gave a keynote talk on travel writing there last year. Matt also wrote a New York Times bestseller called How to Travel the World on $50 a Day. His new book, 10 Years a Nomad, takes a more personal look at how he went from being a frustrated office worker to a full-time traveler, travel blogger, and digital nomad. I called Matt from Paris earlier this month, and we talked about his personal travel history and the lessons he learned from his first multi-year journey. But we also explored the important why questions that are relevant for anyone who's dreamed about traveling the world for years at a time but isn't sure how to do it. You know, over the past several weeks, a number of listeners have written in to ask how they can support this podcast. And apart from spreading the word and giving the show a good rating or review at your favorite podcasting service, the best way to support the work I do here at Deviate is to check out sponsors like Tortuga, which makes backpacks and backpack accessories for vagabonding travelers. Not only will you save 10% when you use the promo code DEVIATE to buy a Tortuga pack, you'll also let them know that you found them through this podcast, which is exactly what sponsors like to hear. So if you're in the market for a travel pack, please check out the options available online at rolfpotscom Tortuga. And again, that discount code is DEVIATE if you want to save 10% off your order. This episode is also brought to you by my longtime partner, Airtrex, which helps you plan multi-stop flight itineraries for vagabonding-style journeys. You know, in describing just what it is Airtrex does, I think it's easy to gloss over just how much money they can save you in planning vagabonding itineraries. And even if you aren't ready to book your dream trip just yet, their online travel tools are great for tinkering around and dreaming about hypothetical journeys. You can find those trip planning tools online at Airtrex.com. Okay, let's listen in as nomadic Matt Kepnes talks about how he was able to travel the world and blog about it for more than 10 years. Let's sort of explore that question, the why question, through your own story, because there's. it occurs to me that some people might not necessarily know your last name. You're nomadic Matt, right? You're... You're um you're the travel blogger, but there was a point at which you were just Matt Kepnes. You were a working stiff who was dreaming of travel, but hadn't done a lot of travel. So let's walk through uh, this stage that you explain in your book of you sort of being a novice or a beginner who's dreaming about travel um, to a person who actually becomes a digital nomad. So what were your earliest travel desires as as a young man? You know, as a young man, I didn't actually have many. I didn't really grow up in a travel household. Uh, it was never part of my upbringing. You know, we would just drive down to see my grandmother and we'd go to Disney World. Um, in college, I never studied abroad. It wasn't until I had graduated, got a job, and they had said, you have two weeks vacation, you have to take it. But I said, okay, I guess I'll do what you're supposed to do and take that two weeks vacation. You work, you have a 401k, 
and you go on vacation. And that's how American life goes. Uh, and so when I took that vacation to Costa Rica, I fell in love with travel because I love the fact that I could wake up any day and I could do what I wanted. I could just – anything could happen. Whereas back home, everything was so planned. And I didn't really love my job. It, was, it wasn't going to be my career. Uh, so I just found like the routine of life back at home so monotonous and boring. And What kind of there, job did you have? I was um, an administrator, like low, low-level administrator okay. uh, in a hospital. Okay. And so, you know, when you go onto a a patient floor, like, and you need to see somebody, and somebody at is there at the desk answering phones. That was me. Okay. All right. Um, so I I fell in love with the sense of adventure that travel seemed to to have, and so I got hooked. And then I went to Thailand. And I got hooked even more. And and then I just knew I, I loved it. it for me, it was an escape. Uh, it was, you know, it broke up the fifty weeks of monotony uh, that I had with my job. And so when I decided in Thailand to quit my job, finish an MBA, uh, and then go travel, um, I I just really wanted to have this adventure and this break before I sort of started my career. And that's what sort of inspired that original trip around the world. In a second, I want to jump on to the fact that you didn't really ever come back. You, you know, your book is not 10 months a nomad, it's 10 years a nomad. And I want to dig into that a bit first. But I'm curious, as you began this job quitting journey, what kind of fears and worries did you have going in? I My biggest fear was internal okay. you know it was did i have the skills to do it was i competent could i make it you know how was i going to make friends uh how would i survive only knowing really english i knew some spanish but that wasn't gonna help me in you know italy uh you know could could i make it you know i i grew up you know very middle class uh, homogenous small town and outside Boston um, life was pretty easy I'd never really been pushed out of my comfort zone and so I was mostly really worried that I I didn't have the skills needed to accomplish this I, I, I figured that it, the money was never a problem I had saved I had budgeted I knew how much I need to spend uh, per day you know it I was just worried, like, what happens when I land in a foreign country and I don't know anybody? What am I going to do? Uh, and so that was always the worry in the back of my mind. Now I was so excited about the prospect of landing in a foreign country and living this adventurous life, uh, you know, that I had built up in my mind that that outweighed the fear. But that was always the biggest fear. Right. Uh, and then, then did you? Once you started travel, was there a learning curve, or did you did you adapt to it pretty naturally? Because it's it's been twenty five years since my first vagabonding trip, which was sort of in a van, and I had I had maybe some similar fears about 
oh, about budgeting, but I knew my budget was pretty good about, about dangers and getting lost and stuff. So as you started traveling, um, how did you take to it? I think when you go travel and you have all these fears in your head, you realize pretty quickly that they are really unfounded uh, because you land – you know, especially when you're vagabonding, you're staying in hostels, uh, you worry, how am I going to make friends? Well, your hostel has an event that night and you talk to the people in your dorm room or they see you sitting by yourself. And back then, you wouldn't be sitting by yourself with a laptop or an iPad. You'd you know, be drinking by yourself at the hostel bar and they'd invite you over. And so, uh, and you quickly realize that Getting the bus in a foreign country is the same as getting a bus anywhere, subways or subways. And so I, it took me a little bit to you know get my groove, but uh, you know what, I, my first major destination was Prague. That was where I, I landed and I was all alone. Uh, but I was at the bar. These people invited me over uh, for a drink. They became my circle of friends when I was there. And so I, I learned in that one instance that, okay, maybe I can make some friends. And it took me, as an introvert, a while before I could get comfortable doing that with people. I kind of would wait for people to invite me over or I would hear people making plans and I would sort of like shimmy my way into the group and be like, oh yeah, can I come too? After a while, I would be like, hey, my name's Matt. Uh, and I would make that first introduction. Yeah, this might be fun for some of my listeners to hear that there's sort of an evolution that as you as you become a more experienced traveler, you sort of learn to identify people who were like you a few months before. And you realize that that something like an invitation to a beer would kind of make their day. Um, And you write you write a lot about the social aspect of travel, which is interesting. Yeah, you know, I think we we travel and we go and we think. How am I going to make friends? You know, what's going to happen? But one thing you do quickly realize is that everybody is like you. They are all alone in a foreign country. They don't speak the language. They have no friends, family around to help them out, just like you. And I think that, you know, after a while, you get this learning curve going. Um, you realize, okay, for me at least, it, it made it a lot easier to talk to people. Because I knew they were in the same boat as me. And and that didn't make it seem so scary. And, and I think we have you know, this social anxiety um, about talking to strangers. Most of us do. you know, Because we're always worried, like, where are they, they going to judge me? Mm-hmm. What are they going to think? Uh, what are my friends going to think as they look at me talking to strangers? But none of that is gone. All of, all of those triggers, all that baggage we have has been left at home and so it doesn't matter if you're talking to a stranger it doesn't matter what they think or how they're going to react because tomorrow you'll be gone or maybe they'll be gone and so you can just start again yeah yeah you write about uh, travel friendships a fair amount you say that travel friendships are snapshots in time when you meet again it's as if you're being transported back to those moments um and I think that there's sort of an assumed temporariness. I think at home sometimes we're feeling each other out like, oh, is this somebody that I might want to hang out with in four months or, or a year from now? Whereas on the road, it's sort of understood that you're probably going to be parting ways again soon. And so there's an ease to travel. And I think sometimes it's it's easier to just be 
honest and intimate with people that you meet when you travel because you're not really beholden to them in ways, in compromising ways that might be at home. I completely agree. I think you know, to go back to what I just said a little bit is like when you're at home, uh, to echo what you just said, you're feeling people out like, are we going to be friends for a while? Uh, and we also have all these you know, insecurities and, and social uh, judgments that we make, you know, about how you dress, how you look. Um, are you going to fit into my life and my tribe and my community? Whereas when you're on the road, it doesn't, none of that really matters because we're, we're going to keep moving forward and on to the next destination. And all that really matters for you right then in that moment is, are you a fun person to hang out with? Uh, because I have all these activities I want to do and I'd like someone to do them with. Who you are back at home doesn't really matter. All that matters is who you are right there. Yeah, it's fun. As I'm, as a self-defined introvert, I enjoy travel uh, sort of for that reason, is that you there's there's less of an inhibition because it's understood to be very in the moment. So many things about travel are in the moment. But travel friendship is very much that way. And I actually want to get on to romantic relationships because you wrote some interesting things about romantic relationships. But first, I want to sort of touch on this vibe of the early days of travel. And I'm curious about planning. Like, how did you approach planning when you went on your first big open-ended trip? I had about a million lonely planets stacked up in my, my room back in my parents' house. I bought every guide to every place I was going to see. And I really overplanned. I had my route planned out. I had every day I would be in a certain country. I had timed it all to hit, you know, all these spots over the the year to 14 months I thought I could make my money last. Mm-hmm. You know, first I was going to drive across country, then I was going to fly to Norway to see a cousin, then Prague, then Italy, then Greece through Asia, Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, and back again. And uh, I, I threw that itinerary out the window really quickly uh, because I ended up meeting some great people and staying longer in places and finding places I didn't really like and want, leaving it sooner. And I think you realize that planning is nice. I like to plan. I still plan. It gives you ownership of your trip. You know, you get to like think about the places you're going to go and the activities you're going to do and the food you're going to eat, and it really like gets excited for this. You know, even if you're only going away for two weeks, it's like, oh, I'm going to do all this great stuff, and I'm going to look look forward to doing and eating, and it's lovely. Uh, but when you get on the road, you realize that plans don't really happen the way you want them to because travel you know, is very unexpected. You know, what can go wrong will go wrong. And so you're going to miss a bus. Uh, You're going to go to a museum that is suddenly closed for the day. You're going to get sick. You're going to find the destination you really love and want to stay. People you love and want to stay around with longer. And so I um, just started throwing out my plans. And I think that is actually the best plan. My, my view on planning now is that leave your hostel, hotel, Airbnb, whatever, with two or three things on your mind to do that day 
and then just let the rest of the day fill in because it's the serendipity of travel that makes travel amazing. When you just stumble across something and you, you feel like you're discovering something, that really makes you know the whole experience worth it. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a couple of good things to grab onto here for my listeners. One is that I think over planning is normal because I did the same thing, and it's fun, you know. And if nothing else, over planning allows you to know what your options are. But then when you're on the road, you're right. Serendipity is is one of the greatest rewards of travel. And you actually say in your book, you say going, learning to go with the flow is the most important part of travel planning. Travel is about letting things unfold and happen naturally. It's better to see fewer attractions and go deeper into a city or region than to cast a wide net and go shallow. Going with the flow is how you get to know people and places better. It's how you avoid the stress and expense of constantly being on the move from place to place and attraction to attraction. That magical rom-com serendipity that people dream on the road, that moment when a local friend befriends you or you stumble upon the most charming cafe or hole-in-the-wall restaurant, that stuff only happens when you let the day unfold without trying to assert your will against it, which is sort of what you're just talking about. That's not a bad idea to have maybe to earmark a couple things that you want to see and letting the rest of the day go to chance. At what point did you realize that this trip might be might last more than a year? Um, at what point did this, this one-year vagabonding journey turn into what eventually became 10 years or more? Well, there's about two points. There's the point when I decided in Southeast Asia that I was really into this travel thing and I wanted to return to Europe the following summer. And to do that, I needed money, uh, more money than I had saved up. And so I had stopped in Thailand and I taught English. And what I thought would be just a couple of months and I'd move on turned out to last about eight months. And so that really pushed my timetable back. And so I ended up coming home uh, January 2008, which was about 18 months after I had originally waved my parents goodbye and set off into the sunset. Mm-hmm. But when I returned, I got a temporary job working in healthcare again, um, filling in for somebody's assistant who was on maternity leave. And I sat down and I really felt as if the, the last 18 months hadn't happened. And it was a very depressing thought because I had returned to Boston expecting all this change uh, and all these, you know, I tell my friends what I did, and they'd be like, "Oh, yeah, you know." And then I, that's great. Here's what we did, and we swap these amazing stories of change and growth and adventure. But they had just been working, going to the same bars, um, doing the same thing. Nothing had really changed, uh, and that was fine. And was, I'm not judging them, but for me, it really felt like I had just stepped back into a life that had remained frozen while I had grown. Uh, and those two things caused a great amount of dissonance in my mind. And so I decided that I would work a bit and then go to Europe. And I would just then go back to Asia to teach a little bit. And that turned into, okay, I'll stay in Asia a little bit more. And okay, then I'll go to Australia. And then it was always thinking about the next destination in front of me. And suddenly, ten years had gone by, huh. and um, you know, I 
I had never started out with these grand plans to become a travel writer or have this giant website or even last for 10 years. Uh, it was all about how can I keep going just one more place, just a little bit longer. Uh, and suddenly all 10 years went by. Yeah, I think it's worth addressing just sort of the density of experience that happens when you travel um, that maybe the people back home don't always understand, or even sort of the blank slate that you subject yourself to, this this new sense of self and constant reinvention that happens when you travel. Because I think there's this old reputation. It, it may be sort of old-fashioned now these days, but the idea that travel is a status object, that you travel and you impress people back home, but it's seen as sort of a two-dimensional thing that you do as a show-off thing. I think that people who haven't traveled in this way sometimes don't understand just how rich a day or a week can be. So why don't you speak to that a little bit, like the things as this one year turned into 10 years, what kinds of, of life experiences were you undergoing? I think you're absolutely right. You know, when, and this is one of the things that really attracted me to travel was that you know, back home, you, know, you, you work, you commute, you make dinner, maybe go to the gym, and you kind of repeat this process. And so time kind of drags. Uh, but when you're traveling, you, you visited a bunch of museums or went on a walking tour, and then you found the cutest little cafe in the world, and you just stayed there all day. And then the next day, you, you go on like some wine tour or a, a day hike, and, and you're constantly doing all this stuff, you know, and you're just cramming your days that you think wow that Rolf you know it's been so long since we went to that beach and you go actually no it's only been four days because so much has happened in that that time period that you get this real warped sense of of time Uh, I think travel makes the days drag uh, but also shrinks them because you you've done so much that it feels like you've lived eight lifetimes in the week, but you've it's only been a week, and so I I don't think you really learn about yourself until after the fact. You don't wake up one day and think, oh yeah, it was that moment that everything changed. You you know you. You know, yesterday was the day I became a different person. Mm. It's a slow, gradual build, and and for me, a lot of that change happened really early, early on in my travels. It was when I learned to to talk to people. You had mentioned earlier relationships. It was when I walked up to a girl at a bar in Taipei and I said, "Hello, my name is Matt." That I suddenly became a, a more confident person. That I that the Matt back at home would never do that. He would be way too scared, uh, way too worried about uh, what would people think. The map in Taipei didn't really care huh. because it didn't matter to him what people thought. And that, that was a real shift uh, in my sense of self. And you know, even coming back here in the States, I still you know, have that confidence. Like, uh, you know, I'm going to go talk to a person not because I have some ulterior motives, just because they're a person that I, I think is interesting and I wanted to speak to that person. That could be at a bar, that could be at a museum, that could just be striking up a conversation with somebody on a bus. And old Matt never would have done that. 
Yeah, you know, I think travel has a way of blending education. In some ways, we think as Americans that education are these four years we go to college, and I'm not knocking college, but the educational aspect of travel can be so rich. But it, there's also a transformational aspect of travel that in a way, they don't teach you in college to be more confident in the way that you sort of accidentally learn or decide for yourself to be a more confident and bold and, and, and fearless person, even in small social ways. And it's it's interesting how, I think in a way that like the brain has a way of, of, of marking time. And when you're constantly experiencing new things, the brain is more attentive to them. And, and so it feels in your brain, I'm sure there's some hard science behind this, that, that time is moving a little slower, that there's a greater density of experience. And then back home, there's these traditional milestones, especially when we're young people, you know, there's graduation and and, and, and marriage and job, job promotions and stuff like that, travel seems to turn that on its head and it allows you to sort of reinvent what is important on a day-to-day basis. You know, I think that when our, our markers of time are so spaced out, we, we feel like we are just waiting for the next one to happen. Graduation, uh, college graduation, getting the job, marriage, you know, homes, kids, retirement. These are like, this happens over a course of a lifetime. You know, when's the next marker going to happen? In travel, there is no real marker. We're not waiting to do something. We're just doing things. And and that, you know, crams everything in. I, I, I agree with you. I think there's probably some science uh, with this on memory and, and such. But uh, so it, we don't feel like we're just waiting for the next thing to happen. We're just doing stuff and and things happen and they just all fit into our brain somehow. Yeah, I think I think uh, you have another interesting quote and it's the the idea of being interesting. And when we're at home, we're, we try to be interesting or we, or we try to sort of bring ourselves out of our habits or out of our old self. But I think in travel, it's a little bit easier to encounter these things. And so in the book, you say, I learned that being interesting would be harder than sim- simply making a single dramatic decision. More than that, there's a paradox about being, quote, interesting, unquote. Just as confident people don't talk about how confident they are and funny people don't tell you how hilarious you are, being interesting is not something that interesting people aspire to. I've met my share of interesting people on the road, starting in that cooking class in Thailand, and what I thought of them was not something that they were actively striving to cultivate. Rather, being interesting was a quality that they carried with them. It was part of who they were, a character trait. It came out in the stories they told, in the way they carried themselves, in the confidence from pursuing a passion, whether or not people give a damn. Um, So why don't you talk about this process from being maybe someone who aspired to be interesting to being a person who just sort of inhabited the world in a way that was interesting? When I left, I left in part because I wanted to be interesting because I grew up a very nerdy, shy, introverted person. And I thought travel would make me interesting in a way that all the people I met in Thailand were, that I could come back and regale people with stories and make them laugh and be the center of attention. You know, it's sort of like the Dosecki's guy. I'd be the most interesting mm-hmm. man in the world. Um, because I thought that could, that's what, you know, I, I could finally be happy or be not happy. I was, I was very happy, but at least more comfortable in my own skin had I had this long travel experience. But, 
know, just because you've done interesting things around the world doesn't make you an interesting person. And I, and I think what I quickly learned, uh, especially after I lived in Bangkok, uh, you know, I had come not knowing a single person and I had left, I had a girlfriend, I had a job, I had a wide circle of friends. I, you know, I made a life for myself in an absolutely foreign place. And, and what I learned through that experience was that I was always an interesting person. Uh, I just needed to realize that for myself. And I, and I mean that in the sense that I think interesting people are interesting because they have a depth of knowledge about a lot of subjects and a, a wide set of interests. They like a lot of things and they want to you know, be good at a lot of things. They, they can hold a conversation. And I could do all that with my friends. I just wasn't really good at doing that with strangers. I'd clam up. And so traveling and meeting strangers constantly, a lot, like I had to just like be able to hold a conversation with anybody. And so I, I kind of learned that, okay, I, it didn't matter like that I had, you know, lived on an island in Thailand or learned Thai or, um, you know, been to all these countries. Those are interesting things, but that doesn't make me an interesting person. Interesting people are people who can tell a good story and have a good conversation. And I, you know, not to be too egotistical about it, but I was already that person, but I was only that person with my friends. And I travel taught me how to be that person with everybody. Yeah, I feel like travel helps you grow into deeper versions of yourself, that, that there's aspects of yourself that for whatever patterns you're, you're following at home, you're not exercising certain parts of yourself. And travel not only lets you exercise those parts of yourself, but it allows you to test trial some parts of yourself that might not work, um, but it allows you to, to just be a little bit different and a little bolder than you would be back home. Now, how old were you when you started traveling? I was 23 when I went to Costa Rica, and I was 25 when I put on my backpack and left. Yeah, so so a lot of the chapters in your book have a pretty young vibe. There's a lot of time at hostels. There's a lot of time with 20-somethings. And, and later on, you, you look back at it from an older perspective. But it feels like there's a lot of fertile ground to cover, um, That like the people you would meet in and even your average hostel can can be a rich resource of, of, of friendship and, and inspiration. So uh, what would you say, how did you learn to navigate hostels? What are the goods and the bads of, of, of sort of hostel hopping around a place like Europe? Well, I think the biggest good is the people you meet. You know, uh, hostels can have all the amenities in the world, or they could be the worst place you've ever laid your head. But at the end of the day, it's the people in them that really define them. And so I love the fact that I was just meeting people left and right, uh, that I was you know, able to sort of, as you say, test my personality on lots of people, find friends, find kindred spirits. And you know, in, in that time when it's just you and them stripped away from everything else, you, you sort of can develop a deeper connection with people. And some of the some of my best friends still to this day are people I met in hostels. You know, we were sure we were only together for a few days, but whenever we meet again, we are still best friends. We still pick up where we left off because we have this like really deep connection. Um, you know, we, 
speaking of time, you know, when you spend 24 hours a day with pers- a person for a week straight, I mean, that's a lot of hours. I mean, you think of how often you see your best friend in a given week. It's, it's not, you know, a couple hours in a week, you know, so, you know, a whole week worth of time, 24 hours, you know, for five days, that's like months of time compressed into just a few days. This is another thing that it's probably worth my audience considering, because I think when we look back on life, we have a lot of close friends from grade school and from college and maybe from work or work training, but I'm in the same boat. I have some really close friends that I have still from my travels, some some travels of which were a long time ago. And I think it's for that reason that you're just you spend more time together, you're more vulnerable together, you're both sort of out of your comfort zone in a way that might happen in say your freshman year of college. And so that's a big gift of travel, I think, is that you you never know when you're going to walk into a room and uh the room might not smell good, but you walk out and pretty soon you have a friend that you're going to know 20 years later. Um an interesting thing that you touch on is road relationships and romances, which I think is a, is sort of underwritten a little bit. I think as travel writers, we're hesitant to talk about road romance. Um, actually, when, when I wrote Vagabonding, a lot of people asked me, oh, well, um, tell me about this relationship you had with a Hungarian archaeologist. And I'm like, oh, well, that's a reference to the English patient. I wasn't actually talking about my personal life. Um, but in your book, you, you acknowledge that there are romantic relationships on the road, uh, but that those, like the friendships that you meet, there's an acknowledgement that it's not necessarily permanent. And I think that there's a way of, that we talk about romance sometimes where that seems like a bad thing. Um, but in a way, those can be fun, not just fun, but meaningful relationships too. So why don't you talk a little bit about your experience with, uh, with road romance? I like friendships. You know, they do have an expiration date, and I think that allows people to to really, like, you know, get involved and have deeper relationships with people without the fear of baggage and the worry of any social judgment from back home. You know, we think of relationships as something that you get into with, like, there, there needs to be an end. Like, why would you get into a relationship that you're going to – you know, split up with somebody. It's you, we're searching for life partners, and on the road, when you're going a million different ways, you're not really searching for that. And so, stripped away from all that, you can really develop deep personal relationships, and they happen a lot quicker. Mostly because, as we mentioned, you're with somebody for you know a lot of time, you know, really quickly. But also, there's no dating. You know, it's not like, hey, I'll call you next week and we'll go to dinner. Next week you're going to be in a different country. You have to really dive, dive in really quickly because, you know, you you know you only have a few days together. Maybe you have a couple of weeks and your schedules are, are going the same way, um, or maybe a couple of months if you really like each other. But there's still, you know, it's rare that I think you find your partner, your life partner on the road. It happens all, all the time. But more often than not, it's sort of a temporary relationship. Yeah, I think I think sometimes there is this dichotomy back home that if it's not meant to be a test run for a long-term relationship or a, or a life partnership, then it's a little bit predatory, you know. Like the it, it's uh, there's there's a sort of a negative vocabulary sometimes, you know, players or whatever, you know, people who date around. 
Whereas on the road, there is this accepted temporariness, that there's not a social strike against um, very intense but shorter romantic relationships. Um, and so I think that need not be a negative thing. It's almost like on the road, we're given permission to have short-term relationships. And like you say, people often, there's many marriages that are born from being on the road. And I think that sometimes you learn more faster about your partner when you're traveling with them. You can really, you learn how you make decisions together as a couple. You learn about immediately about what you like and you don't like. But oftentimes, it is just part of the joy of travel that, uh, that, that romantic relationships like friendships on the road are shorter, and that's fine, and it's actually part of the joy of travel. There's a lot less angst, I think, in that aspect of romantic relationships. Yeah, you know, you can meet somebody, fall in love, and break up all within like a day and a half, you know, because you, you do, you know, speed up the whole cycle of relationship when you're with someone 24-7. You learn their habits. You know, you're... you're Staying cramped in one hostel's private room together, you know, there's not much space, you know, so you really learn, like, are they messy? Do they snore? Do they, you know, leave the bathroom a disaster? You know, what are their habits like? And and that's good and bad. Uh, I think, you know, it can, it can really help you figure out what you want in a partner, too, because I, I think Bill Murray said this. He's like, don't have a wedding, just take all the money and go travel for a year. And if you're still together after the year, you're, you're going to be together forever. I think travel can really tell you a lot about relationships because you're stripped away from all the baggage of back home. You can't hide. You know, there's no like, I'm going to go into the other room of the house and you know, not deal with our problems. You're, you're there. There's nothing else. You have to deal with the problems. And so yeah. I uh, learned a lot. I'd imagine, and, and, and you know, I, I'm just thinking there's probably some people who are listening to this podcast who've been married for 15 or 20 years and are thinking, oh, well, I guess this doesn't apply to me. But I think that's maybe one thing that comes through in your book, that it's it's the travel memoir of a young man, of a single young guy. Um, and and I, I think you're right. I think you can learn a lot about relationships by having relationships that aren't meant to be um, till the end of time, relationships that come out of a certain set of circumstances that might involve some newness and some stresses that you might not find back home. Um, now, speaking of stresses, you also acknowledge in your book that travel isn't always fun. I think sometimes when we're planning our travels or even when we're recalling our travels, we only recall the fun parts. But there's actually a bit of drudgery. There's a bit of work involved. There's a bit of repetition involved. And so how do you reconcile and acknowledge these more difficult um, and even routine-driven parts of travel? It can feel really ungrateful to say I'm bored. You know, when you're in, you know, Vietnam or New Zealand and you're like, I'm really bored. I don't want to do anything today. But, you know, when you travel long term, eventually travel becomes repetition. Uh, and like anything that becomes repetitive, it can become boring. It becomes a routine. And, you know, you're waking up, you're unpacking your bag uh, or packing your bag, uh, finding the next bus. You know, you have to go to another hostel. You have to make friends. You have to figure out what to do. You have to learn the language. It, for all the variety of travel, there is still some semblance of a routine. And... 
how you approach every destination. And after a while, it, it gets tiring and because it is a lot of work to constantly have to make friends, to constantly have to figure out if you're getting you know, screwed, if you're getting cheated, to constantly have to figure out what to do and where to eat. You know, is this restaurant you know, going to make me sick? Uh, how do I navigate the bus? You know, how do I figure out this language? It takes a lot of mental energy. And at some point, you're just like kaput. You know, travel is not, I say this in the book, travel is not like this infinite wellspring. Uh, it is a battery that needs to be recharged. And sometimes you just need to like take a break. You know, and you don't want to see another charge or another waterfall or have the same conversation with uh, these new travelers like, oh, where are you from? And you're just like, I just want to read a book, you know. And so I think in the beginning you feel like, what am I doing wrong? You know, why do I feel so ungrateful and bored? Like I must be screwing this up in some major way. But the more you travel and the more you talk to people, you realize that what I call travel burnout is a natural part of travel. You know, it's a natural part of life to just get burnt out doing the same thing over and over again. And I think that, you know, taking a break is is completely normal and it's okay. No one's going to judge you because you're going to just for a whole week just watch Netflix in your room. Yeah, I think that's that's an important thing to acknowledge that we sometimes feel this puritanical guilt for not making the most of our travels. We sort of we we take our attitude, our almost micromanaged office attitude from back home and we apply it to our travels thinking if we're in and it makes sense, you know. If we're in the Czech Republic, if we're in Turkey and we're not taking advantage of this place that we may never come to again, then it's a bad thing. But some of my most favorite days on the road have been when I've taken a book and sit in a hammock and just let the day go by. I, this winter, I was in Sumatra. I was at a place called Rimba, Rimba Eco Resort. And man, I had some great days. Some of the best days of this year where I just sat in a hammock and I swam around in the ocean and I didn't really have an agenda. It was a nice way to go. Um, another thing that you just brought up is, is the idea of scams. Um, and I think that there's a lot of experiences on the road, especially for new people that might seem as negative or might seem as a reflective, a reflection of the fact that you're not as good of a traveler as you thought. But you write in the book, you say, with time, one comes to realize that if you don't occasionally get scammed on your travels, you aren't pushing yourself enough. Scams happen to confuse people in unfamiliar places, people who don't take pre-approved tours and deviate from their guidebooks. Going to unfamiliar places and getting a bit lost overseas is exactly what I was looking for, even if it meant taking some risks. Of course, I never recommend letting your guard drop completely and putting yourself in a situation of real danger, but most scam artists are like the guy on the tuk-tuk, you're referring to another story, someone who is trying to wring a few bucks out of a tourist to feed his family. A bit dishonest, but basically harmless. You don't, if you don't run into someone like that, you're traveling in a bubble, or maybe you're not even traveling at all, you're vacationing. So how can the bad times of travel actually be a constructive part of the adventure in your experience? You know... Failure is always a teaching opportunity. Um, you know, it's like that Thomas Edison quote, I didn't fail, I just found 10,000 ways that didn't work. And so, you know, it's easy to beat yourself up because when you realize you've been scammed, you realize you've made yourself vulnerable, uh, 
and got taken advantage of. And, and that can really hurt the ego. Nobody really wants to be taken advantage of. Nobody wants to admit that, okay, I've been scammed. I screwed up. I, well, I'm not as good as I thought. But, you know, in those early days when I was in Bangkok, and we got scammed a ton taking on, we fell for the temple tour uh, where, you know, you go, we were in the wrong part of the royal palace. So we were, didn't see the main entrance. So it looked like it was closed. And, you know, this guy came up to us and was like, oh, yeah, it's closed for lunch. Which, you know, it seems reasonable. Some museums do close for lunch. Uh, I'll take you to all these temples. And, of course, sure, that sounds great. But he also took us to, like, a gem shop. Right. Souvenir shop. A, uh, a suit shop. Then we went around. Uh, and when he brought us back, we, we realized that, oh, wow, we had been in the wrong part. The whole time we were in the the the, uh, the back of the the royal palace. If we had been in the front, we would have seen that it was in fact open. And I beat myself up over it for a really long period of time. But looking back, you know that temple tour. I saw the most temples in Thailand that day. Huh. Right. I mean, we went to like six or seven temples and so i actually really got to see a lot of temples and it was also a learning experience in the sense that you know i i need to not worry so much about uh people taking advantage of me because sometimes a good thing can happen out of a bad situation yes uh my friend ended up buying a suit uh i actually bought a suit too because my my friend convinced me that they were good quality I didn't actually last about five years, uh, so it wasn't all too bad. But you know, I saw a lot of temples there. But then I, I learned to also question my assumptions. Like, oh, is the temple really closed because that makes sense? Or did I just not walk around the whole thing to see the main entrance? And so I, you know, and I constantly, you know, sometimes fall for, for harmless scams, you know, overpaying uh, things, uh, you know, and so I think that from a bad situation, good things can happen because it will also teach you to be a little bit more careful and thoughtful. Uh, but you know, most of the times people just want a couple extra bucks and, you know, no one's you know, going to take you for the proverbial ride, uh, to the bank where you, they're going to force you at gunpoint to withdraw all your savings and then leave you stranded in the street. Yeah. I think that in a way, you know, as travelers, we have desires. We have desires to see the temple. We have desire to meet somebody interesting. We have desires to do something new and that makes us vulnerable. And when we're vulnerable, sometimes we make mistakes. Um, I think in a way it's, it's a much gentler version of those old Nigerian 409 scams or whatever they were called. You know, people have a desire to get easy money. Well, as travelers, we just have a desire to do interesting things. We have a desire to, to see the temples during the lunch break or whatever. Um, and so I think that's an important thing for people to remember that they can forgive themselves, that everybody, if you're not making mistakes, especially in the early days of your travel, then maybe you're not pushing the envelope a little bit. Now, one thing that I want to touch on is um, is technology and the fact that you really your reputation came out of travel blogging, um, 
And there's a sort of a catch-22 about travel blogging in that you're, you're giving this really strong evocation of your traveler travels to people back home who dream about your travels and maybe envy your travels. But when you're actually capturing and writing about your travels, you're sitting maybe indoors, or at least you're sitting stationary. And there's a part in your book where a woman named Heidi says to you, when you started traveling, you were 100% body and soul, right? When you were, were behind your computer working, you weren't. When you're always connected on Facebook, you weren't. When you spend 20 minutes trying to get a, a photo of a perfect sunset, you aren't. It seems like such a waste. And this feels like sort of an epiphany moment in your book where Heidi is this person that you really cared for and she was sort of calling you out for not making the most of your travels. Yet, as a travel blogger, you're sort of obligated to capture things. You're obligated to work while you travel. So over the course of now more than 10 years, have you found that balance between trying to travel as organically and true to travel as possible while also kind of performing your travels and capturing them for your audience in a way that's useful for your audience. Yeah, that experience with Heidi, you know, was a convalescence of many things. You know, you talk about, you know, a, a short relationship that's very intense. You know, I had met her and I really enjoyed her company, but we were like super opposite. She didn't even have carry a camera. She just had an email. Uh, so when she invited me to travel to San Blas Islands and go with her into Colombia, I immediately was like, yes. But then I got really scared. I was like, oh, I'm going to have to be without internet for a while. Uh, so I sort of backed out of it and said I would just meet her in Colombia. And I don't know if uh, I got her email wrong or she just realized we were too different. But I never really heard from her again. And you know, I would love to be able to find her on Facebook, but I know she doesn't have Facebook. Um, but it, it really taught me that I had made blogging too much in my life that, you know, I, I had traveled to see the world, but I was really just seeing it from my laptop. And I, and I think that, you know, you don't travel to find a cafe with great Wi-Fi. That is not how you experience the world. And over the years, I've learned that I, I've come to the opinion that you cannot work and travel at the same time, that one will suffer that you'll either feel guilty that you're working or you'll be stressed uh, that you're not working. So nowadays, I, I don't work and I travel. I like to write when I travel because I, I enjoy writing. That's not really working. Um, but when I am on the road, I am not like doing SEO or getting involved in marketing or you know fixing the design of my website. I do that when I am home and, and as a consequence uh, and as a consequence I just tend to go for about a month and then I kind of go home that's sort of like my travel limit but even if you're not uh, going home that you're gonna just spend a year traveling and working I think you really need to take sort of work breaks that you got to find a place and just work for however many days you need and then continue on so you can be fully present when you travel. Uh, because, you know, if you're trying to write about travel and the experience of travel, if you only have half your mind there, you're not really going to be able to fully experience it and then write about it in a way that conveys 
what you experience or the sense of place in a way that is going to really make someone really interested in going there as well as really interested and want to follow along your story. Yeah, it feels like that's sort of a, a lesson learned from all your years of travel blogging. And, you know, you do list a, a list of 19 lessons learned from travel. I think I'm going to I'm gonna cover those in a separate bonus episode. I think I'll, I'll wrap this episode by asking you how you are a different traveler now than you were before. Because you make an observation in your book about looking back on uh, the younger travelers who've sort of come behind you. You used to be one of them. But you say they have the same wide eyes and they ask the same question that you've been asked a thousand times before. They want to party. They want to make new friends with everyone. Individual backpackers may come and go, but as a group, they never change. They don't change the way that you're changing. You begin to change how you travel, seeking fewer but deeper relationships, trying to drink less, wanting to avoid the same conversation you've had a thousand times over. You're just tired of restarting all the time, end quote. So I think... Part of what's thrilling about travel when you first start traveling becomes just maybe a little bit less satisfying or becomes a little bit more repetitive over time. So what kind of changes have happened to you and what kind of groove through which do you travel now? You know, when I started my travels, I was 25 and I'm 38 now. And so I have more money than time. You know, when I was traveling back then, I had this set pot of money that I had to make last forever. But now I have an income as a writer, so I kind of splurge a lot more. I like nice food. I don't like to sleep in dorms. You know, I, I take a little bit more tours and activities, things I wouldn't do when I was 25. And you know, the idea of a $50 cooking class was way too much. Like it was a whole day of expenses. So over the years, you know, I've I've gotten to enjoy nicer things, but I will always be a backpacker. You know, I don't like hotels and resorts and eating fancy meals. I want to find that hole in the wall noodle shop. I I like hostels. Uh, I still stay in them, not dorms, private rooms, because I just feel it's a much more organic, on the ground experience. A hotel is the same everywhere. You know, I love the W. If I do stay in a hotel, I use points for the W. But the W hotel is a W hotel. There's no change to it. it it's, it's like a McDonald's. You know, It's the same. And I don't travel for the same. Uh, so even though my, my tastes have changed, I still like the backpacking experience. And I still really like staying in the hostels too because you know, as much as I don't want to have the same conversation over and over again, Stepping into a hostel every so often really sort of reinvigorates me. You know, there's so much positive energy around. Uh, everyone's really excited. It's their first time traveling. And that kind of like reminds me why I began in the first place. And it reminds me all the good that is in travel. It, it, it destroys some of my old curmudgeoniness that has sort of accumulated over the years. And, and plus, this is my audience. These people read my website. So it, it really allows me to keep my ear to the pavement on train on changes in sort of travel and you know what's going on and what's hot and what's not. 
All right. I've been talking to Matt Kebnis. His new book is 10 Years a Nomad. In a second, maybe in a day or two, we'll talk to him about his 19 lessons learned from 10 years of travel as a bonus episode. Uh, but for now, Matt, there might be some people who are listening about your 10 years journey as a nomad. What would you what would you leave them with just if they're considering do it th- doing it themselves, but they're not sure exactly how to go about it? I would say that if I had to leave people with any one piece of advice, it would be to trust yourself. You are stronger than you think. Uh, and to always remember that you are not Magellan, uh, that you know, you're not going off, you know, into uncharted territories, so to speak, um, that their travel trail is very well trodden. And if, you know, young kids just stepping out of high school can manage to get around the world, you can do it too. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Matt's new book, 10 Years a Nomad, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.